Good morning. I love that song. Go praise the one who paid our debt in our place and raised his life up from the grave. It's such a beautiful song. Such a really good song to reflect on the Christ who paid our debt um, in our place. So if you would take your copy of scripture, uh, turn to John 17, 24. Uh, John 17, 24. If you are using the Pew Bibles, it's on page 903. And this is the word of the Lord. John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Let us pray. Oh God, I thank you for just your grace and your glory and your mercy, Lord, and your sovereignty where we have come together by your grace to sing your wonderful praises. And I admit, Lord, I come here as a needy young man, a poor and needy, Lord, in need of your grace, in need of your power. Holy Spirit, would you open up my eyes that I may behold the wonderful things and proclaim your glories and your excellencies. And you would prepare our hearts that we would receive what you would have us here. And you would be much magnified and glorified in this time. It's through Christ I pray. Amen. And so C.S. Lewis, in one of his classic books, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there in this section of the book, there's written such a beautiful interaction between Lucy, little Lucy, and Aslan. And in this interaction between them, there is an interaction of beholding Aslan that Lucy does. And this is what the book says. It says, welcome, child, he said, As, uh, he said, Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you are older, little one, answered he. Not because you are, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And as I have been praying and reflecting on uh, this text and praying and reflecting on this time this morning, I saw that the greatest need of us this morning and every day of our lives is that Christ would become bigger and bigger and bigger. That as 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are taken from one degree of glory to the next. That as we look at the glory of the Lord Jesus and all his beautiful person and work and what he has done in our place, that we would be changed. And so... I was led to John 17, and John 17, in this particular text, it is, has been regarded as one of the greatest scriptures ever, greatest chapters ever in the Bible, and specifically in verse 24. I mean, it has been read by countless Christians and prayed through in the topic of many devotions and many sermons. For example, Charles Spurgeon, a great Baptist pastor uh, in the 1800s, he preached over 20 sermons from this. And one of the pastors, Thomas Manton, one of the great Puritans, he preached over 40 sermons. And this sermon, this, this particular prayer of Jesus was a go-to text for dying Christians. And then the question must be asked, why? 
What was it about the prayer of the Lord Jesus in this text that really served to comfort the heart of Christians? And even me, I this week, yesterday, as I was preparing, I literally at six o'clock last night wanted to throw away this sermon. I wanted to throw this sermon away because it was too lofty for me. I felt the weightiness of this text, the weightiness of what I'm about to preach to you. But in this text, what we see, which is why the Christians of old found much encouragement, is because in this text, the answer to that question is that we see the great desire of the Lord Jesus and one of the greatest comforts for believers that we behold his glory now and truly in eternity. So this message has two parts, two parts. First, first part is we're going to kind of use as an overarching thing kind of to guide our time right now. Uh, we're not really going to look at everything in this text, but we're going to look at verse 24 where Jesus prayed that he that his glory would be seen. And we're going to look at beholding the glory of Christ. The first part would be what Christ's prayer of his glory consists of. And second part will be what a life that that is true of looks like. And so in order uh, for us to work through this text, we're going to work through the text in three parts. In three parts. For the outline uh, for uh, the note-taking saints, we'll, we'll, we'll use, uh, number one, we're going to look at who are we to behold. Uh, secondly, what are we to behold? And lastly, to serve as an implication and application, those that behold. So first part, who are we to behold and what are we to behold? And lastly, those that behold. And if you look in John 17, 24, Jesus prays that, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Now, in this prayer, we see Jesus addressing one of the greatest needs of his disciples, as well as all who would believe in him through their message. And that great need is that we are to behold him. So who are we to behold? To answer the first question, it's the Lord Jesus. And if you realize in this text, the personal pronouns, he prays, Father, I desire that those whom you have given me would be with me where I am to see my glory. And this is what he prayed. And in order for us to get the weight and the gravity of beholding Jesus, we must see the context into which Jesus prayed this prayer. And if we're familiar with John's gospel, John's gospel uh, at the end of the text says that these things were written that they may know Christ and those who know him, those believe, would have life in his name. And the great prologue and the great theme of this text is seen in the context of the darkness to which the disciples and the Lord Jesus found themselves. In verses, in the chapters that went before, in 14, we called this the parting prayer of the Lord Jesus. And this discourse, this prayer is, uh, is linked to chapters 14 through 16. And Jesus, in him being the one who came into the world to love his people, he loved them to the end. 
And in verses in chapter 14, we see Jesus comforting them and saying that you will be with me. And then he promises the Holy Spirit. And in John 17, he says, none can do anything apart from me. But don't don't worry. I am saying these things that my joy may be in you and that you and your joy will be full. And these disciples at this very moment are facing a very hard time. The one whom they have staked their lives on, the Lord Jesus, is now going to the Father. He came to ransom his people. He came to accomplish the work from all eternity. And now in this very dark moment, in this final discourse, the Lord Jesus stops. And as it were, he looks over the plan that he is coming to accomplish. And he prays, Father, I desire that they, those disciples, and all whom you have given me, would see me. And what does Jesus mean by see? Jesus in this text, this, this word see, that they would see my glory, is the same word in John 1.14 that Christ, who was incarnate God, he came as the eternal God. He came and we, John says that we beheld his glory. We, see, we have seen his glory. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we beholding the glory of Christ are changed, taken from one degree of glory to the next. He's not talking about seeing with these, though it's not less than that, because we see in the scripture of the Lord Jesus, but he's talking about seeing with the eyes of the heart, the eyes of the affections, the eyes of the treasure, the treasure, the throne of our heart would be toward him as Brian preached, that where we were right here, we would look to him. And this is what he prayed. He prayed that we would see him. He didn't pray that. If you think about our context today, if you look at, if, if we were in this context of Jesus where the disciples are in a tough time when Christ is about to leave and he is about to leave his disciples and accomplish that work of redemption, what would we have prayed? What would our culture have prayed? We would have prayed that, well, I hope that they get more strength. I hope that they look and see that, that, they, that they are great people, that all they have to do is think a little bit better about themselves and all they have to do is do a little bit better and all they have to do is come together and ban a form of uh, uh, unity. No, that is not the essence of Jesus' prayer. He prays that we would see him. This was his desire. Who are we to behold? We are to behold Christ. Which brings me to the next point. Not only are who are we to behold, we are to behold Christ. But the, the, the question is, what are we to behold about him? Uh, we are to behold Christ. We are to look at him. He prayed that we would see him. But what is it about Christ that we would see? He prayed that, Father, I desire that those whom you've given me may be with me to see my glory. It is clear that Christ prayed that we, that all those who given him to him would see not just anything about him, but would see his glory, the glory that the father has given him before the foundation of the world because he loved him. Which brings me to the question. The question must be asked. What does Christ mean by his glory? We see that we are to behold him. 
But what specifically about Christ are we to behold? And this is where we will spend the bulk of our time this morning. We are to behold the glory of Christ. Now, what are we to behold? As I've studied this text and what God laid on my heart, we see that we behold the glory of Christ in three ways. We see his glory. What do we behold? His glory is, number one, the eternal Christ. Number two, the saving Christ. And number three, the loving Christ. What are we to behold? His glory in him being the eternal Christ, the saving Christ, and the loving Christ. So toward the end of the verse, if you will look at the last end of the verse in your Bibles in verse 24, he says that to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. And in this text, Christ prayed that we would see his eternal glory. And it echoes the first part of the verse when the first part of the prayer in John 17, one through five. And in, in verse five, Christ prayed. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And in this text, it also before the foundation of the world, what Christ is saying is that it's, it's an echo of John one. If we are familiar with the much quoted words of John at the beginning of the gospel, he says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And not only was uh, he with God in the beginning, but through him, as John says, through him, uh, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. And so Christ in this text, he want us to behold his glory in him being the eternal Christ. It was never a time that Christ never existed. His glory has been seen in that he from all eternity, eternity is eternally God. He's not just a mere man. He's not just a mere good teacher as some would have you to think. He's not just someone who wanted you to live a certain way and follow different type of morality. No, he wants us to see his glory as being the eternal God. And not only his glory as being the eternal God, being one with God the Father and one with God the Holy Spirit, he wants us to see his glory being eternally the creator. And in this text, uh, in John uh, 1.14, we see, I mean, in one. In John 1, 4, we see that all things were created through him. He was creator. That all the glory that we see in this world, the beauty of the universe, the beauty of just all things that man is able to create in the vast stars and all the great things that we look at in Mount Everest and think about the greatest trip you were on and you beheld just the beauty while flying in the plane. All of this was created by the Lord Jesus. And he wants us to know that there is nothing just about him that he wants us to see. He wants us to see that he is eternally the creator. But not only so, in this verse, the greatest eternal thing Christ wants us to know about him is that he has been eternally in relationship with God the Father and God the Spirit from all eternity. The how are we to understand the Trinity? Many people have taken this glorious doctrine of the Trinity, which is the foundation of the Christian faith, and said, hey, just let's try and fit some things to make it sound like this. That's okay. But the greatest way, they're, they're, they're faint. They're created things. They cannot tell us about the created God. The greatest way we see the glorious doctrine of the Trinity 
It's in the relationship between God the Father and the Lord Jesus from all eternity. He says, I desire, Father, Father, I desire that they would see me, see the glory that you have given me because you love me. It wasn't nothing about him that he wanted us to see other than his glory from eternity in his relationship with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. As one commentator says, this implies that the material universe is not eternal, but was brought into being by God. Before that, nothing material existed, but God existed eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, implying, implying that there was mutual giving of honor in the interpersonal relationships of the Trinity from all eternity. And it was on the basis of this, this mutual love that existed between the persons of the Godhead that Christ came to accomplish redemption. And he came to this great dark place he prays, Father, I want them to know and enjoy the eternal fellowship of God himself. The eternal fellowship that the Son had with the Father, enjoying him. And the Spirit had with them reflecting love, that they would see that glory and enjoy it. And this is the glory of Christ seen in him being the eternal Christ. But not only so. He wants us to see him being the saving Christ. And not only is his glory seen in him being the eternal Christ when his, in his relationship with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, if we are to see uh, Christ's uh, glory as well, it's to be seen in him being the saving Christ. And before, uh, before we can actually see that, we must plumb the depth, the depth what made this saving glory necessary. What made the saving glory necessary was the uh, sin and the fall of man. If we would reflect on Genesis, the Bible says that uh, Adam and Eve has fallen from grace, have fallen from the eternal fellowship that they had with God. And the Bible goes even further to say on the basis of Adam representing every human being, from the beginning of time to now, each one of us are recipients of the punishment of the fall. And it is this great darkness of sin and Satan and what our sins deserve, which is eternal wrath of an omnipotent God, that we are able to behold the glory of Christ as the saving Christ. He prays that, Father, I desire that those whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Now, when Scripture, if you will look in verse 24, when he speaks of those whom you have given me, this particular, this particular word, I mean, this particular phrase, those whom you have given me, uh, has been uh, uh, prayed in verses 2 and uh, verses uh, 6. He prayed in verse 2. Uh, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And in verse six, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Now, when scripture speaks of this, those given to the son by the father, it's always in the work of redemption. That this glory of Christ over and against all of our sin, just think about it. 
think about the sin of man and what it deserves, it seems as if Jonathan Edwards, as Jonathan Edwards said, he said, it seems that sin and Satan and hell and man's corruption seems to have won the victory over the God of the universe. From the fall of man to even now, we see a world that is fallen, a world that is subjected to the uh, uh, punishment of the fall, a world that is subjected to futility. And it's over against this dark and deep backdrop that the saving glory of Christ is seen. And this is seen in that Christ over and against the pitfalls and the darkness of sin. That God from all eternity has enacted a plan of redemption. And where the Father, out of great love for Christ, granted him a people that he would represent in time. And that he would accomplish this redemption. And it would be sealed and finished. And it's on the basis of this. On the basis of what Christ has done in his perfect life, in his incarnation, in verse I mean, in John 1, where the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory, him, his glory being full of grace and truth. That over against this great weight of sin, Christ in his life and in his death and in his resurrection has torn down every obstacle between us and God, between his people and God. To bring them joyfully and effectually to glory. And this shows the eternal glory of Christ. Not only his eternal glory as the eternal eternal Christ, but also his glory as the saving Christ. But he not only just stopped there, he prayed. He didn't just pray that we would see his glory, that those whom was given to him would see his glory just now. Though it's not less than that. He prayed, Father, I pray that those whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Now, what is Christ talking about? He's evidently, if we are to look in this, he's evidently uh, talking about in glory in heaven. That he prayed that all that the Father had given him and all that he was on the way to accomplish that redemption in Calvary will fully and finally be brought to him in joyous fellowship through all the sin in their own heart, through all the sin of the world, that they would be brought effectually to glory. That the good work that God has purposed in himself would be fully and finally realized. And as John Piper notes in his great book, I would encourage you to get it. It's called God is the Gospel. He notes in his wonderful book, God is the Gospel. He says, the best news of the Christian gospel is that the supremely glorious creator of the universe has acted in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection to remove every obstacle between us and himself so that we may find everlasting joy in seeing and savoring his infinite beauty. The saving love of God is his doing whatever must be done at great cost to himself for the least deserving so that he might enthrall them with what will make them supremely happy forever, namely himself. And this is the great saving glory of Christ. 
that he was the one who came and lived a perfect life. And he was the one who bore our wrath, the wrath of his people, all who would believe in him and trust in him in time. And it was he who is now seated at the Father, the right hand of the Father, who prayed this prayer. That I desire that all whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, the glory that you have given me. And so lastly, not only is Christ's glory seen in him being the eternal Christ, it's also seen in him being the saving Christ. But lastly, it's also seen in him being the loving Christ. Christ prayed, Father, I desire. In this text, as Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer says, he says, in this text, we see the great heart of the Lord Jesus. We see his heart desire for all his people. We see his desire that not only would we be with him, but we would enjoy him. And the basis of this is the great love that Jesus had for his people. And though his disciples would face a trying time. He loved his own who were in the world and he loved them to the end. And though his people sin seemed to have been much, and though it seems that Christ could not overcome the corruption of each and every Christian's heart, and though it seems that each one of us has treasured the darkness that we love, and though it seemed that there is a great chasm between the man and his God, that Christ, out of the great love that he has for his people, he prayed that they would see him and enjoy him. As John MacArthur, uh, the pastor, great pastor, great influential pastor said, in this prayer, Christ prays his people into heaven. He prays his people into heaven. And not only did he pray that we would be with him in heaven, what is it about heaven that would be so good? Now, we must consider this question. If we were to die and to go to heaven and have this great hope of the gospel, really consider this, this, this afternoon, consider this. If you were to have all the pleasures that you've experienced in this life and reunited with all the great friends that you have experienced in this life and experienced all the great beauties of the created universe that God has created, but God in Christ is not there, would you be happy in heaven? What makes heaven in this prayer so beautiful is that Christ not only prayed and accomplished as the foundation of his love, he has done at what great cost to himself to grant his people what would cause them to be supremely satisfied. And that is seeing his glory for all eternity, forever and ever and ever. As the great Baptist pastor, Charles Spurgeon, who has walked with me closely in this sermon. In one of his first sermons on this text, he, he, he preached this text and I think... Uh, 1890, no, yeah, I think it was 1890, he preached this text. And in this text, he, he preached on this text, it was called the Redeemer's Prayer. And as one of the great pictures of the Redeemer's Prayer to show that Christ was the loving Christ, this is what Spurgeon says. He says, let us pause and think how sweet this prayer is. 
by contrasting it with all our attainments on earth. Brothers and sisters, we know little of what it is to be with Christ. There are some happy moments, sweet pauses between the din of the continued battles of this weary life. But in heaven, there should be no interruption. No weeping eyes shall make us for a moment pause in our vision. No earthly joys, no sensual delights shall create discord in our melody. And as the great apostle loved John, who wrote this text, he says in 1 John 3, 2, which is one of the beautiful texts, the Bible, which shows the consummation or the realization of this text. In 1 John 3, 2, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Peter says that though you have not seen him, you still love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with it, inexpressible joy. But my dear friends, we preach this all week, every day. We think about this. We read great sermons and we hear great sermons and we hear great hymns and we see that truth that one day we will behold him. And I dare you, I promise, I dare you to stop and pause and think of what great joy all those who have gone, gone through hell and high water, through all the sin of your heart, through all the anger on your job, through all the kids who are screaming, through all the things that you're enduring, that one day there will be no interruption to behold the great glory of Christ. But we shall see him as he is. Therefore, not only who are we to behold is the Lord Jesus. He desired that we behold him. What it is about him that he desired to behold was his glory in him being the eternal Christ, the saving Christ, and the loving Christ. But lastly, what are we to do with this? What are we to do with such a lofty prayer and such an effectual prayer, such a beautiful prayer? And so as I was thinking, I said, okay, what type of implications can I think on this text? What, what, what are the markers of those who behold the glory of Christ? What are some of the things that mark the lives of those who have been given to the Son by the Father? How, how am I to answer this question? And so, lastly, as our implication, application section, we're going to look at some statements that mark those who behold the glory of Christ. And so, firstly, those that behold the glory of Christ have clear views of him. So those who behold the glory of Christ have clear views of him. We don't just see Christ as a, a good teacher or just a, just a mere man. No, we see Christ as fully God of fully God. We see Christ as the one who has accomplished the redemption in the place of his people. We see him as the risen king and the risen Lord, the one who is the delight of heaven. It is him that we see. We don't behold our good works. We see the great weight of sin that made the death of Christ necessary. That God to uphold his justice, God to uphold his justice and to express his love has accomplished it in Christ. 
So those who behold him have clear views of who Christ is. Secondly, those that behold Christ's glory have satisfaction in him and love to him now. That Christ prayed this prayer that his people would behold his glory fully in eternity, but also now. That, that as we think about the great accomplishment of Christ, accomplishments of him, we behold him now. We are satisfied in him now. We see him as the great treasure of the gospel, the great pearl of great price, the great diamond of our eyes. We love him now. Thirdly, those that behold Christ's glory live a life of conformity to him. As Jesus has said, he says, those who love him keep his commandments. It is not that he says, okay, if you keep my commandments, you love me, that shows. No, this is to be a marker, not a merit. This is to be a marker. Those who love Christ conform to what he loves. He loves his glory. He loves the glory of God the Father. He loves the church. He loves a life that is enthralled with him, a life that fights against sin, a life that loves the local church, that loves those whom he died for. Those who behold him conform to him. Those that behold, fifthly, I mean, fourthly, those that behold the glory of Christ never tire of beholding his glory on this side of heaven. Now, my dear friends, if you can just think right now, that, that song, that hymn that, that, that you listen to, that in my place condemned he stood, that, that Christ alone, in Christ alone, my hope is found. How deep the Father's love for us. He will hold me fast. Those who love him never tire of when they hear that song or when they reflect on that text that they are so overwhelmed with love to Christ that it, it feels as if they just want to die right now to experience the full consummation. So those who behold him never tire of that. They never tire of reading the good books. They never tire of listening to the sermons. They never tire of talking to brothers and sisters about them. And they never tire when darkness comes, because it will. They never tire when God is so gracious to shine his glory again, to grant such a lively view of him from these means. And lastly, those who behold Christ's glory are kept and brought to final enjoyment of Christ's glory in eternity. I have a specific word for the older saints and the younger saints and the middle saints. Those who are older, finish strong. Reflect on these things. Finish well. Because what awaits you far away, anything that death could ever take, Anything that life could give that's enjoyable, it will be 10,000 times enjoyable when we behold the glory of Christ. Those who are in the Middle Ages and the young folk, start off beholding him. Don't, don't, don't let a moment go by where your life is wasted on beholding the things of this world and treasuring the things of this world. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ and find all your joy in him. Behold him now. Because those who behold him now will behold him fully and finally in eternity. So I pray that God in his grace would grant that we would behold Christ, him, 
but not only anything about Christ, but that we would behold him as the eternal Christ, the saving Christ, and the loving Christ. And that by beholding him, we're brought into a life that conforms and that marks those who truly have beheld his glory. Amen. Amen. Lord, I thank you for uh, your grace and your kindness, Lord, this morning. Lord, I thank you just for this text, how this was true for me, that, Lord, as I was struggling, this text was true in that moment of struggle, that you prayed effectually for me, that I would behold your glory even as I'm preparing the text. And God, I thank you for granting great joy in preaching. I pray that the saints who beheld your glory today would go from encouragement to encouragement, from glory to glory. And I pray that any who do not behold your glory, Lord, would, that you would work sovereignly on their heart, that today, that though they may have had different views of Christ, but that they would see him as the glorious Christ, and that by it, all of us would be changed. It's through Christ I pray. Amen.